With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Opperman Report. Join digital forensic investigator and PI Ed Opperman for an in-depth discussion of conspiracy theories, strategy of New World Order resistance, high-profile court cases in the news, and interviews with expert guests and authors on these topics and more. It's the Opperman Report. And now, here is investigator Ed Opperman. Welcome to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, Private Investigator Ed Opperman, and this show is brought to you by Audible.com. Uh, you go to audibletrial.com front slash Opperman Report. You can sign up for free, and you get yourself a free audiobook. Let's see. Um, if you are new to the show, if this is the first time you are hearing this show, uh, please go to OppermanReport.com and check out the members section. We have a lot of additional content uh, in the member section that's not available online or it's not available uh, over the air. Uh, it's only available to members. So check that out. And if you like what you hear on the radio tonight, please uh, send me an email at uh, oppermanreport at gmail.com. Uh, speaking of the member section, I got a lot of stuff coming up. Uh, Monday morning, I'm taping a show about uh, John Benet Ramsey. Uh, it's a very uh, unique uh, uh, point of view on that case. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, also, too, I, I did a show uh, on Thursday, yesterday, um, with a man named uh, uh, Jeffrey Gilson. Um, first time he ever did an interview about this book. The book is uh, in pre-order, uh, and I, did, I was able to get the first interview with this guy. Very, very interesting story. It's called Maggie's Hammer, uh, How Investigating the Mysterious Death of My Friend Uncovered a Netherworld of Illegal Arms, Deals, Political Slush Funds, High-Level Corruption, and Britain's 30-Year Secret Role as America's Hired Gun. Uh, now, believe it or not, we're doing that interview, and what comes up in the middle of the interview? Uh, Adnan Khashoggi and uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Okay, so it's, it's definitely uh, the kind of interview that uh, this audience will love. Now, if you are listening to this show, and you are located in the state of Arizona, and you have ever considered advertising on the Opperman Report, please get a hold of me. Please get in contact with me. Uh, at oppermanreport at gmail.com. We have an, a great opportunity uh, to be on AMFM in the state of Arizona that will a 50,000 watt radio station in Phoenix uh, that covers all the way from Phoenix. Uh, let, me, let me take a look at this. All the way from Phoenix uh, to Sedona, to Tucson, to Yuma, to Globe. It's a huge chunk. It's one of the top 10 radio stations uh, in the state of Phoenix. We can get on there. I just need a sponsor. I need to bring a couple of sponsors with me. 
Uh, so if you want to get on board now, get on uh, while the, the getting's good. <laughs> Let's all get together and get down to Phoenix down there. Maybe I'll even move down there. Okay, tonight we got a great show. Um, great guy, Tom Secker. Uh, his website is called um, spyculture.com. Uh, he also wrote a book called Secrets, Spies, and 7-7. Uh, interesting guy. Uh, I was on his show. He has his own podcast. Uh, and I was checking out his website today. A lot of great stuff. All the same kind of stuff that our audience was lo- would love. Uh, his podcast, one is about Marilyn Monroe, the CIA memo. Uh, biggest ever FOIA release from Pentagon Entertainment Liaison Offices. He did a whole expose on CIA and Hollywood. Great, 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 great stuff. Uh, Tom, are you there? Yeah, Dan, it's uh, great to be talking to you again. Yeah, you almost gave me a heart attack, man. <laughs> I didn't think you were Sorry, gonna... <laughs> man. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's okay. Now I feel better. Now I can relax. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, you've definitely got a show tonight. <laughs> yeah, thank God, man. Okay, man. So tell us about yourself. Who is Tom Secker? Well, I mean, I, I've got into these sorts of research areas years and years ago when I was in my early 20s, I guess. That's probably not that old <laughs> but yeah i mean i made two films about the london 77 bombings of 2005 um in way ooh, 2010 and 2011 those films came out then i wrote the book secret spies in 77 uh while i was doing that i was also running this website that i still have up i just don't uh, post there anymore uh investigating the terror.com which was looking into not just the 7-7 case, but a bunch of other major terrorist events that were either suspected or probably were some kind of uh, state-engineered or false flag terrorist attacks. And then once I finished the book and I was looking at other areas that I was wanting to move into, other things that I was wanting to get into and talk about and, and just devote some time to researching properly, uh, that's when I hit upon the spy culture thing. I noticed this was an emerging field, this relationship between military and intelligence agencies and popular culture, entertainment, um, and that they were using these as propaganda. So I thought that was the, the next area for me to get into. So that's what I've been up to for the last few years, at least anyway. Well, how old are you now? Uh, 32. Yeah, you look young. Okay. <laughs> so you've been working on this since your 20s. And it's like 1 o'clock in the morning over there right now, right? Uh, yeah, give or take. <laughs> yeah. Okay, 106. Now, you're also somewhat of an authority on Operation Gladio. Uh, I, well, some people would say that. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people who looks at uh, a lot of these sorts of operations where you're talking about... Um, not necessarily the intelligence services, but often people within the intelligence services being involved in in covert networks and being involved in very, very disguised, deeply disguised operations so that people don't know who it is that's pulling the strings. And as a result, Gladio is one of those things that came up, absolutely. Um, That, I mean, even looking at it from just within my own country and within my own kind of lifetime, uh, the the so-called the troubles, the so-called war on terror in Northern Ireland, all of that, so much, when I was in my teenage years, I guess, and and into my 20s, you had a series of parliamentary investigations and other things into what was going on there. And so often it would trace back to agents of the state of one sort or another, whether they be military or intelligence or police special branch and so on. So 
yeah, this is something that, you know, even affected me quite close to home in a lot of respects, let alone, you know, what the British government and the American government has done all over the globe. And yeah, Gladio is a big part of that. And I do make the argument in uh, my Disinfo Wars podcast for, for BFP, for BoilingFrogsPost.com. Um, I have made the argument that Northern Ireland was just a, an outgrowth of Gladio. It was another series of infiltrations and provocations of radicals and militants in order to create a war on terror, in order to create something to respond to, if you like. And, and what about like the RAF and the Bader-Meinhof? Well, that is certainly part of it. Um, all across Western Europe, and I suppose even across quite a lot of Eastern Europe, certainly Turkey is part of this as well. Wherever you see these sorts of radical organizations gaining a significant foothold, either it's because the state has been supporting them, or it's because they've infiltrated them and seen that they're, you know, rising in power and rising in influence, and therefore they infiltrate them and start to either direct them or misdirect them to to their own ends. So, yeah, I'm not necessarily a, a specialist on Bader-Meinhof, but in, in Turkey you have the Grey Wolves, and on the other side you have the, the PKK and the Kurds and all of that. In Italy, you have the Red Brigades, and the flip side, you have Ordine Nuovo and the other kind of neo-fascist terror gangs. It's it's a very widespread phenomenon, for sure. Yeah, so now, I, I acknowledge that there's always infiltration, you know? Mm. Uh, but, but now, do you think it's a, on a, a scale, 50-50, do you, do you think it's more infiltration or more control uh, of, the, of these operations back in those days? Uh... Ooh, interesting question, Ed. Interesting question. I guess it depends on which parts, uh, which sorts of organizations and which sort of radicals we're talking about, really, because sometimes they want to infiltrate and disrupt. Sometimes it's a movement that they don't want it to go anywhere or it's, uh, you know, they're radicals who are usually when it's uh, when the radicals are attacking the state itself. And in Europe, that would typically be people on the left wing those organizations tended to get infiltrated and just they tried to destroy them. Right. They just tried to make sure that they didn't gain any kind of real foothold. Whereas certain other radicals in Europe, we're talking about neo-Nazis, the leftovers from World War II, um, they did actually want them to be under their control so they could use them as a... Um, yeah, as their proxies, as their weapon against the public, as their weapon in order to refashion and reshape these states that they existed in and, and you know, change the political dialogue in those places. So there's a lot of both. That's all. I, yeah, that's a bit of a cop-out answer, maybe, but I'd say there's a lot of both. It's not a cop-out at all, because once you, you start dipping your toe into these waters, it's there's so many conflicting agents and double agents and and mm. uh, dupes, you know, and, and uh, every kind of combination, uh, informants, that uh, you just spun around, you can't figure out what's going on, you know? It can be a very tricky one, because certainly figuring out who the agents are, that's not necessarily that difficult in a lot of cases. In some cases, we just outright know, okay? Uh, but you also have this problem of, well, who are these agents really working for? are they working for people within these intelligence services? And does that mean they're actually working directly for the intelligence services? Or is this part of some other network? Because this is one of the problems with Gladio, is that 
a lot of the time, the people who were handling these gangs were certainly people within the intelligence and security services, but they were also part of Masonic networks, and they were also part of other sort of deep state networks. So certainly in trying to figure out who's really pulling the strings and what their agenda really is, that's that's the part that is often very, very difficult when when your head starts really spinning. Right, and it's so hard to, uh, it's so important uh, to remember that there are there are private organizations, like you said, uh, Masonic groups, uh, even I believe in the Vatican, <laughs> Scientology have their own agents, you know, and these kind of groups, and then big multinational corporations have their own intelligence uh, uh, operatives working for them. Uh, so it's just, and then there's foreign intelligence, you know. Uh, when I was involved mm-hmm. in the Sarah Palin case, foreign intelligence agencies were trying to infiltrate my life. Uh, so and it's just all a giant mishmash. You can't figure out who's who and what's what. Um, well, and, and don't forget, Scientology not only have their own paramilitary wing, but also the supposedly the biggest infiltration of the U.S. government in all history was done by Scientology. It wasn't the KGB, although, <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Some people would take that story about, uh, what was it called, Operation Snow White, this big infiltration of various government institutions by Scientologists. Um, a lot of people would look at that and look at that story and say, oh, that's supposedly the biggest infiltration. I get the impression that's probably not... But it was certainly a big one. And if you think if a kind of weird Hollywood-based cult can do it, then who on earth else might be doing it? Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely a very ambitious uh, operation, <laughs> to say the least. You know? And I saw it, too. Uh, again, back in, in New York City, back in the 70s and 80s, there was a group called the New Alliance Party that was an offshoot of Linda LaRouche. And they, mm. were, they were up to the same exact thing. They were doing uh, infiltrating uh, uh, school boards and PTOs and, and every kind of little place where they can get themselves into uh, all over the place. And very interesting, later on, uh, when Pat Buchanan ran for president, I guess it was around 90, in the 90s by then, uh, who was the mm. vice presidential candidate? was uh, Lenore Fulani, who was from the New Alliance Party, from that group, uh, a LaRouche offshoot. And no one says anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> Well, a lot of people aren't following these things and aren't thinking, you know, connect some dots here and figure out maybe there's a bit more going on. I know, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's a good one. No, but not even like Pat Buchanan, he's Nixon's speechwriter. Okay, we know who he is, but where the hell does Lunara, Lunara Filani fit into this? No one asked him, no one says, you know, would you pick her for? You, know, you would think it would come up, but now what do you make of that okay uh, the local media and the news media and their role in all this because you've done a lot of study in that too as well well it's a difficult one because again exactly who do these media belong to not just in the sense of you know corporate who owns them but what kind of alliances and loyalties do they have because it really isn't like um I don't, I don't believe that after a major terrorist attack, you've got all of these different people in these different newsrooms knowing exactly what's really going on. Right. Because let, let's face it, even us, years and years, sometimes decades later, we can't figure out the exact details for ourselves. And we're like, you know, really trying to. We're desperate to. When we, can, we have lots of time sometimes to devote to individual cases and try and figure things out. Um, but I think in that... You know, that rush to coverage that is typical of all news media organizations, there's a very dangerous dynamic that can be played on. Not, it doesn't take that many people to seed a false story. And because, I guess, because so many news organizations are used to covering things without necessarily having to know whether or not they're true, 
they're covering something without you know necessarily even thinking we're going to be talking about this in a week's time it's just forgotten in yesterday's news and blah blah so like i say in that dynamic it's quite easy for the odd intelligence agent to just slip in there and say this or that and in the case we're going to be talking about tonight it's very curious that just before the world trade center bombing a 93 one um you did have this uh, CIA panel on, what was it called, on increased openness or something. And if you read the paperwork from this, they admit they have agents in every major news organization across the country. And this is from the early 1990s. And it said something very funny about how um, this has enabled us, the CIA, to turn certain stories that would have looked like intelligence failures into intelligence successes or something like that. So... They're clearly very, very much engaged in this. They're very, very much engaged in not only their own public image, but images of other events and people's perceptions of other events. And it's, there is clearly a lot of people in the news media, without necessarily getting into names and individual examples, but simply the fact that the CIA are saying they have some kind of hook into every major news organization across the whole country. It's on a huge scale. It's just got to be. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. Yeah, it's, there's got to be a ton of them that are on the payroll. And then hmm. there's, there's another bunch that are just dumb. You know, they're just dumb, gullible people that just believe, uh, uh, they believe all this stuff. Uh, you know, I, I'm friends with a couple of these guys, and there's one guy in particular, you know, he was talking about how he gets on a, whenever he gets on a plane, he looks around for Muslim people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this guy's a big producer at, on HLN, you know? And, uh, <laughs> Well, you are, of course, rubbing up against that as well, that once yeah. certain prejudices, certain ideas, certain even ideologies and worldviews and overall philosophies, when they become, you know, entrenched in a society, then, of course, people within media organizations are going to buy into these ideas. And you're right, there's a lot of them who just aren't that smart people. Yeah. They're just some people who, you know, fancied being a reporter or something. And so, you know, they get a phone call with something and their little tip saying, oh, you know, look in this direction. The fact that it might be from the CIA trying to throw them off the scent of something, they probably wouldn't even cross their mind, half of them. They don't even know who this person on the other end of the phone is. It might just be someone who calls them with a little tip every now and again, and that's all they know about them. But if the tips work out and if the people get drawn... Hey, guys, I got a great new deal for you. It's called Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. Now, I want you to take out a pen and paper and write down Opperman 50, O-P-P-E-R-M-A-N 5-0. Now, fact is, delicious ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including Kato, Calorie Smart, Vegan Veggie, and more. Uh... There's even more to enjoy with over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. Snacks, smoothies, and more. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. 
Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast upscale options done easily. Flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or schedule your deliveries anytime. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. So there's no prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. Now head to factormeals.com front slash opperman50. And then you use code opperman50 to get 50% off. That's code Opperman50 at factormeals.com front slash Opperman50. O-P-P-E-R-M-A-N-5-0 to get 50% off. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Onto their stories and everything's successful, then what do they care if it's true or not? It's not even really in their job description to care whether it's true or not. It clearly isn't because, you know, so many of them don't. Yeah, the hairstyle is more important than the, the brains. <laughs> the, the, mm, the facts, you know? Uh, well, all, all the sincerity or integrity of the, the person involved. Yeah. yeah. So true. Okay, so tell us now. I invited you on the show to talk about the, the 93 World Trade Center bombing. Uh, so tell us, first of all, uh, a lot of people uh, are, are too young. Uh, to even remember that bombing in 93. And again, too, uh, you know, I just realized, you know, this show is going to be archived, you know, 10 years from now. So uh, tell us uh, what was the 93 bombing, the, the official story. Okay, I mean, the simple version is that a group of relatively young Islamic radicals took a truck bomb, uh, put it in a rented rider truck, just like the uh, Oklahoma City bombing, um, drove it into the underground parking lot, the underground parking garage at the World Trade Center, and blew it up. And they managed to destroy a surprising amount, in fact, of this underground parking garage, given that this is supposed to be one homemade truck bomb. But okay, they kill six people, they injure maybe about a thousand more. So this was a relatively major attack. This was the first major terrorist attack of the like post-Cold War period, if you like, or certainly in the Western world, certainly in America. Um, so it helped to, I guess, establish this new war, the replacement for the Cold War. Um, and it did certainly start the legislative process towards these insane counter-terror laws that we see now. That was something that wasn't necessarily on the table in 1992 as Bush was heading out of office. But, you know, certainly by after Oklahoma City, it was like, well, we've had two of them now. This is we've got to start legislating. We've got to start doing new things. So it all helped this whole process of 
building up the security state and building up the legal backing for the security state, which in some ways is the ever more worrying thing. You know what I mean? It's no, uh, I don't think it will come as a surprise to most people that, you know, governments have been doing this for decades. Mass surveillance, infiltration, provocation, assassination, all of these things. Um, but increasingly what we're seeing in the modern time is that they're actually putting this into law. They're actually saying we should be allowed to do this. This is a vital part of our society in protecting us. And the World Trade Center bombing was a, a huge part of that. It established, started to establish at least the whole Al-Qaeda uh, Islamic terror narrative, but also that this is the new world. This is what happens in now we're not fighting the Soviets anymore. We've now got an even more diffuse and impossible to see threat out there that we have to be seen to be responding to. So I do think it was a very important event in that respect. Sorry, I'm kind of getting a bit off track. It's a bit late. Um, no, not at all. You're doing great. Uh, now, now, even running up to the, 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 nine, uh, the 93 bombing of the, the Trade Center, there was a bunch of other events too. Remember there was the, uh, the attack at the, the Vatican against the Pope? That is not one I'm all that familiar with. Yeah, they shot it. Remember, now the Pope drives around in a Pope mobile. They put him in a plastic. Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. The attempt on on Pope John Paul too. I remember the the incident. It's just yeah. um, not necessarily one I know all that much about at this late hour. It was the same uh, uh, suspects. It was the usual suspects. The same Muslim extremist, you know, uh, that they, they and it was bizarre too. If you ever looked at those old uh, the news footage. Because uh, they, they caught like seven or eight guys and they rounded them up and they put them all in this big metal cage, kind of an old-fashioned barred cell where they were all in the same cell together. And they, the cameras were there and they were yelling at the cameras and uh, just a whole bizarre uh, – you should take a good look at that thing and see what happened back then. Um, mm. But even running up to 93 in New York City, there was the assassination of Meyer Kahana and there mm. was also the shooting of that uh, yeshiva bus. Are you familiar with those two incidents? Uh, I'm certainly familiar with the Kahana assassination because that was, I mean, all of this, the, all of these events in terms of the Kahana assassination, the World Trade Center bombing and this follow up plot where you had a bunch of the same guys who were supposedly going to bomb all the bridges and tunnels in New York. This really elaborate, massive scale terrorist plot that they never actually would have been able to carry out. But all of this came out of this one mosque, the Al-Kifa Refugee Center, the Al-Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn. Um and yeah, the Kahana assassination was carried out by this guy, El Sayed Nozair, who was a young Egyptian man who was following the blind sheikh, who I'm sure we'll get into uh, after the break, because I think we've got a break coming up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, they, this was a almost like a precursor event, almost like a warning shot that something was up, that something was afoot, something troubling and dangerous was afoot in New York at that time. Yeah. The other case I have heard of, but again, it's not something I'm in any way a specialist in. The one uh, of the yeshiva students in the bus going over the bridge. Mm, mm. Yeah, take a look into that because um, it always struck me uh, that that was a spontaneous attack and that uh, these guys w were like in a cab or something because a lot of these guys were cab drivers involved in this operation, you know. I think even the guys who shot uh, Kahana were cab drivers, and they made an escape in a cab. Um, are you familiar with that? Yeah, yeah. Um, what's his name? Mahmoud Abu Halima was sat outside uh, in a cab. Yeah, because he was a cab driver. Um, he was supposed to be waiting for uh, Nozair to come out, but, but got moved on by a cop or whatever. So when Nozair comes running out of this place, having just shot Kahana, and he's still got the gun in his hand, 
he's then like oh where's my getaway vehicle he um uh i think he, he, he jumps into another cab <laughs> puts a gun to the puts a gun to the guy's neck and tells him you know drive 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 and the guy tells him you know get that, get the hell out of my cab so he does runs off down the street i think he ends up getting uh, shot shot by a, a postal worker or something like that it was a, you know it was a complete mess of yeah. an assassination apart from the fact that they actually managed to kill the guy um and Kahane himself is a very interesting and unpleasant, to be honest, character. Um, I'm not saying he deserved to die by any means, but I'm just saying he wasn't a, a you know, shining example of human kindness. Um, he was a FBI informant back in the 70s and at the same time was at least talking about, if not necessarily planning, all kinds of things like bombings against Soviet embassies and chemical warfare. These were the sorts of things he was talking about with his followers. And you do wonder what's going on there. Why? I guess I'm not saying he was necessarily allowed to be assassinated, but I get the impression certain people were glad that he was gone. I'll say that much. Yeah, I would agree with you with that as well. Uh, have you ever looked into the Jewish Defense Organization, which was the rival group uh, that was led by A.J. Weberman? Not really, no. I know about the, the JDL, but what's, what's the deal with them? Oh, very interesting story. Uh, A.J. Weberman wrote the book Coup d'etat in America, which was a, a book into the JFK assassination, one of the first ones. It was a really good book. Uh, it was one of the first ones that uh, focused on the three tramps. Um, mm. And just uh, the reason why he, he was the head of the JDL. He was also a yippie. He was a part of the yippies in New York City. And uh, he lived across the street from yippie headquarters. And it was a funny story, though, is, and why I bring it up is because he was – his group was rival – to the JDL. And one time, mm. uh, I forget the guy's name, but and the PI Ramdam came over, one of the heads of the JD, JDL, and Ramdam, the private investigator, came over to AJ's house uh, to serve him with a subpoena. They were going to sue him in a lawsuit. So AJ had his apartment rigged that if you came into the lobby, he could lock the doors and shoot you with tear gas. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he had a camera and everything. Okay. So. And, and also, to, the guy was part of the yippie, so yeah, obviously, you know, he, he must have had like a you know a big stash of weed up there and all kinds of stuff. Who knows what mm. he had? But the thing is, is he, there was a hostage standoff that went on like twenty four hours with AJ upstairs and these guys down in the lobby. Every now and then, he's respraying them with the, with the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he's looking at on the video and he's hitting the buttons, spraying them. And the cops are all outside. And wouldn't you know it? No one gets arrested. There's no arrest over the situation. The so. Uh, Hmm. Very interesting, you know. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. <sighs> what are you gonna do though? But the, oh, and it's kind of funny too because later on, like I knew AJ, you know, back in those days, and um, mm. uh, later on, I ran into Ramdam at a PI convention, you know, and I, I was just tempted to say to him, "Hey, man, I know the guy that took you hostage." <laughs> But I did not have the. Uh, it just didn't come up correctly in the conversation. <laughs> no, no, you didn't see an opportunity to just throw that one in there. Yeah. No, yeah. I could not fit that into the uh, into the topic there. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I guess we'll be getting into more uh, of all that. But now uh, the, th the the popular theory, though, is is that the FBI uh, totally controlled the guys who uh, bombed the Trade Center in '93. Yeah, I mean, that's the, or at least the popular alternative view, the popular yeah. so-called conspiracy theory, um, is that it was all being run by this guy, Ahmad Salem. But that is a very problematic story for various reasons. Um, 
not least because the major influence uh yeah it's probably best to, to put it up now the major influence on these guys i don't think was the fbi i think was the cia i think this whole story with imad salem is something whereby the fbi are being a little maybe scapegoated a little hung out to dry not that i want people sympathizing with the fbi don't get me wrong <laughs> i am no fan of the fbi i'm just saying there are worse people in the world than them and Frankly, I think it was them who were really behind the World Trade Center bombing plot. Um, sorry, do you want to jump in there? No, you, you think it was the FBI that was behind the... Uh, the no, 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 no. I think it was the, the, CIA. the CIA. I think that the FBI are, in some way, yeah, the scapegoats in this situation. Because the whole argument, uh, at least with the official story, became oh, but the FBI had this informant, at least in this group, about six months before the, the bombing. So why didn't they get wind of this? And why didn't they stop it? And was this an intelligence failure? Was this some sort of accidental, you know, screw-up on part of the FBI? And the same thing happens in the wake of 9-11. The same thing happened in this country with 7-7, where you had people looking at the security services and saying, oh, but what did you know? And, and why didn't you figure this out? And why didn't you stop this? And, of course, all of that dialogue doesn't get to the sort of most fundamental question of, well, who really did it? I mean, you, you can keep having it go around in circles about, well, what did you know and what did you do about it? And could you have done this? Could you have done that? But the real question is, well, what were your agents actually up to? And the most significant question for me is, why was Salem, Imad Salem, this FBI informant in this radical mosque, or at least this group within the radical mosque, um, why was he pulled? Why was he pulled out of this group about six months in, before the bombing in the late summer of 1992? Because that's a question that's never truly been adequately answered. And I think lying behind that is probably the real story of what really happened in, in WTC 93. Very interesting. Okay, and we'll, we'll, we'll delve into that when we get back after these messages. Uh, we're here today with the... Tom Secker. Uh, we're talking about the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Uh, Tom Secker has uh, got a couple of blogs. Uh, one is spyculture.com. Uh, he's written this book called uh, uh, Secret Spies and 7-7. Seven, seven. Uh, the, the link to that book is up on the OppermanReport.com blog. Uh, also, too, you also have a, a podcast on Boiling Frog, too, as well, right? Yeah, yeah, I do a weekly or essentially weekly podcast called Disinfo Wars that's on BoilingFrogsPost.com. And I do the show clandestine on spyculture.com, which is a sort of irregular, relatively, it's kind of a hobby show, really. Okay, very busy guy. Do you have a full-time job? You do. I, <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a job that is sometimes part-time and sometimes full-time, depending from week to week, which is why I do this on the side, if you like. Okay, great. Well, because yeah, you're still young, you can fit all this in, man. Me, I'm getting old. <laughs> I can probably get all this stuff, man. This, this whole day is killing me, man. Anyway, we'll be right back after these messages. More with Tom Secker, uh, author of uh, Secret Spies and 7-7. His website is spyculture.com. We'll be right back after this. But, Tom, if we talk during the commercials, the audience can hear us. So uh, no secret mm -hmm. spy talk during the commercial. <laughs> <laughs> and now a word from our sponsors. Pacific West Bamboo, your premier source for sustainable building material. They provide construction grade and red grade bamboo material for all your indoor, outdoor, and gardening needs. Now contact them with vegetarian and display them as well. 503-839-8126. 
or you go to their new website, PacificWestBamboo.com, or you can contact them on Facebook at Pacific West Bamboo. That's 503-839-8126. Amanda from Pacific West Bamboo was our first sponsor. Uh, she's been so good to us, uh, so please support her in return. I want to make everybody aware of our new member section at www.oppermanreport.com. Uh, you can go there and sign up for a monthly, quarterly, or yearly subscription. You can even purchase episodes one by one. Uh, you get full access to brand new original content, new guests, new uncensored interviews, my own investigations and reports, and we're going to be adding uh, sections with documents, images, police reports, uh, either provided by myself or by my guests or for my own investigations, my own reports. Uh, so you can go to oppermanreport.com and you can sign up there tonight. You can start listening tonight. Strawman. I want to mention Strawman. Strawman is a band uh, out of Toronto, Canada. Uh, they're good friends at the Opperman Report. Uh, they're a trio of guys who share the same mindset uh, most of us here do, and they put that energy into their words and music. Uh, so check them out at uh, strawmanmusic.com and drop them a line uh, to let them know that you heard them here on the Opperman Report. Uh, we'll be doing a, an interview with Sean Duffy soon. You can get an autographed copy of my book, How to Succeed as a Private Investigator, by visiting my PI website, emailrevealer.com. We also offer a computer and cell phone forensics. We can recover deleted text messages to uncover infidelity. Uh, we, can, uh, we offer asset searches, locates, email tracing, background reports, and we can even trace your spouse's email address back to internet dating websites to catch them cheating online. You can reach us at 800-572-9762, or you can email me at emailrevealer at AOL.com. New World Mexican Women. Everyone loves the New World Mexican Women, and their, their line of fine, handcrafted, authentic Mexican jewelry of stone mosaic and abalene stone inlay. In their first book, titled New World Mexican Women, available on lulu.com, uh, they teach you how to make this jewelry, and they have a collection of love letters to their men from their hometown that have immigrated to the United States to find work. Uh, they have also published a new book entitled Azukina to the Rodeo. It's about a young girl that falls in love with a rodeo bull rider, and she runs away with him uh, without telling her family. You can find the New World Mexican Women by Googling New World Mexican Women. And you can ask them about uh, their deals on wholesaling, their fine jewelry, and all of the other projects that they have going on. Uh, if you'd like to have your business or website advertised here and promoted all over the world on dozens of stations every day, give us a call at 800-572-9762 or email oppermanreport at gmail.com. And now back to our show. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator at Opperman. Show is brought to you by Audible.com. Go to audibletrial.com front slash Opera Report. Get yourself a free audio book. And don't forget, if you are in the state of Arizona and you want to advertise, get a hold of me. OpermanReport at gmail.com. I have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for you. I sound like Donald Trump. I got a terrific <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> it's terrific. Uh, I'm afraid we have no listeners tonight because I think everybody's glued to their TVs watching this clown uh, at this rally here in Alabama. Uh, watching trump instead of us but uh, we'll, we'll have to keep up our end of the uh <laughs> end of a good fight here we're here with tom secker uh he's the author of the book uh, secret spies and seven seven the, the link is up on the opera report.com uh, uh, blog and his website is spy culture he's also on the boiling frog and what was the other one too uh i also do a show called clandestine on spyculture.com yeah busy That's... guy yeah, yeah. Uh, okay and, and you're able to book guests for all these different shows uh, no, 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 no. I um, do most of my shows I do solo. They're me uh, looking at books or films or particular bits of history or whatever. Um, sometimes just me going through a government file and saying what it is that I find that's interesting and trying to make some sense of it all. So a lot of them are solo shows rather than uh, guest shows because, to be honest, if I was trying to do more than one show a week with guests, it would just be a scheduling nightmare, as I'm sure you found. Yeah, it, <laughs> it really can is. Be. It takes a lot of, a lot of time. Um, you, you know, now it's interesting because you were saying about how um, uh, the, F- the FBI in the '93 case, after they did their inve- they started their investigation of this bombing. The theory is is that they found this uh, VIN number off one of the axles, and they were able to trace mm-hmm. that back. <laughs> to the, you, know, you just gotta imagine, and all that rubble, and, and they did it pretty quickly too, right? Did you check in, how, how quickly did they find that? Oh, you're talking about a matter of days. Yeah, this is very, very strange because this is one of the problems, actually, with the, with the whole case that most people have never really, really picked up on. But you're talking about one, like I say, homemade truck bomb that somehow manages to blast a hole through five or six floors of this underground parking lot. And I'm wondering, could it really do that? You know, could a bomb of that power... And at least from the the tests that the army subsequently performed, because this was a very similar sort of bomb to the one that was supposedly used in Oklahoma City. And of course, there is this big thing there about, yeah, but there seems there must have been extra bombs in the building because no way did one little truck bomb outside the building cause all that damage. 
problem with the World Trade Center is it's all indoors and there aren't that many photographs and that much footage of this available for us to examine to try and figure this one out. But still, you're right. The point is, if this thing can blow a hole in half a dozen floors of this underground parking lot, then how did they manage to find this you know, wheel axle with the VIN number on within a matter of like two, three days? And then they trace it back. They find the rental company that the van has come from and they go and set up on the rental company. And lo and behold, they got, you know, amazingly lucky because the by far the stupidest terrorist in history, this guy called Mohammed Salome, who was, it seems, part of this plot to some extent, but he was a total buffoon. Um, this is a guy like when they were building the bomb, uh, they were driving around with the bottles of chemicals in the back of the car that they'd rented, and he managed to crash it into a lamppost. Oh, my God. And, and injure the guy who's supposed to be building the bomb. And obviously, you know, police and ambulance turn up to this accident scene and they're like desperately hoping they don't look in the back of this car and find what's in it. Um, but anyway, yeah, so after the bombing, they turn up at this rental agency. They set up there with, you know, bugs and what have you. And the guy comes wandering in because he, they were so disorganized that they didn't even have like a proper exit plan for how they get out of the city after they'd done this thing. So he goes, he doesn't even have a plane ticket. He has to go back to the rental agency and claim that the van was stolen, tries to get his deposit back, or at least some of his deposit and his rental fee back, in order to buy a plane ticket to get out of there. And this is how the FBI catch him, and he is their like, entrance way into the rest of this plot and the rest of the gang around this bombing, with the exception of Ramsey Youssef, the bomber, who actually managed to fly out that very evening. He had a plan to get out, you notice, but none of the others did. It's very convenient. Um, so, yeah, that's, <laughs> as absurd as it sounds, there does seem to be transcripts of these recordings. It does seem that this guy did actually go back to the rental agency. The part of the story that really doesn't ring true is this part about we set up on the rental agency because we found this axle in amongst these, you know, hundreds of cars worth of rubble in the middle of the World Trade Center blast. That's the part that really doesn't add up for me, and I wouldn't have thought it does for you either. Well, and, and they were pretty quick to, to, to set up on the, uh, the blind sheik too, right? Well, he's a... Uh, this is where the, the whole story gets much murkier and takes us somewhat away from the FBI because this guy, the blind sheik, Omar Abdel Rahman, known as the blind sheik, he was a Egyptian radical Islamist cleric who was deeply, deeply involved in Operation Cyclone in the CIA's covert war in Afghanistan against the Soviets in the 1980s. And at the end of the 80s, in I think it was April or May of 1989, US officials in Egypt, embassy officials, went and met with followers of the Blind Sheikh, who at that point was under house arrest because he was a radical. Um, so they meet with him, uh, with followers of this guy, and they discuss various things, including support for the uh, the Blind Sheikh's Islamic group in Egypt. And the cables, the embassy cables recording these meetings, are signed by none other than Frank Wisner Jr., the son of the OSS and CIA man, Frank Wisner. So you've got to wonder, what's going on here? And then... The blind sheikh escapes from house arrest, reportedly by hiding inside an empty washing machine, if you can believe that, uh, gets out from under house arrest, comes to the United States. And the visas that were provided for him to get into the United States were provided by CIA officials who were posing as consular 
agents, consular officials in Egypt. And so he ends up in, I think, spring of 1990, he turns up in New York. And it's about maybe six months later, is it? I think it was November 1990 that El Said Nozer kills Meir Kahana. Um, and it's just after that that the blind sheikh takes over this whole mosque in Brooklyn. And the original emir in the mosque was, is killed, ostensibly, we can only guess, by followers of the blind sheikh. But mysteriously, once again, the police have no interest in this. Um, and they take over the mosque. And it's not that long after that that the FBI's... Uh, they, they already had a relationship with Imad Salem. He was already informing on them, uh, for them on Russian gangs and Russian mafia in New York. And it's not long after that that he starts saying, there's this guy, the blind sheikh, who's in this mosque, and we've got to get in there and see what he's up to. So, yeah, for a good maybe two years before the bombing, the FBI had this agent, this informant in there, monitoring what was going on, at least to some extent. Um, so, yeah, there is that. But I think this, this is, like I say, where it gets a bit murky, because that account of the blind sheikh, he meets with consular officials. He or rather his followers, meet with consular officials. And the guy who's running the embassy at that time is the son of a very, very senior CIA man. Then he gets, the blind sheikh gets into the US on a CIA-sponsored visa. And this is all happening at the end of Operation Cyclone. This is after the Soviets are withdrawing from Afghanistan and the, you know, the war is won as far as the CIA is concerned. So why would they be that concerned with getting the blind sheikh into the US, into New York, unless they had some other design for him, some other plan for him? And like I say, all of these events come out of this mosque and come out of this group of followers who are being inspired by the blind sheikh. So was he not a CIA asset? And in fact, was not this not his role, his designed role, his desired role in all of this? No? Yeah, yeah, it would seem so. Yeah, if he was brought into the States by the CIA, for what purpose? Like you said, you're right. And, and, but, now, but then still, if he's brought in by the CIA and the FBI, this other guy, Salam, is informing to the FBI, they had to have had wiretaps on their phones and, and, and uh, bugs inside the place there as well. Did that ever come out in the trial of the blind sheikh? Well, this was the problem is that Salem refused to wear a wire okay. because he, th he thought, you know, if they catch me with a wire on me, I'm, you know, I'm done for. And the FBI were only paying him like a few hundred dollars a month at this point. They weren't paying him an awful lot of money. So he was saying it's not really worth it. The risk's just not worth it for me. And he had a family and so on. He had something to lose. So he was saying to his handlers, um, who was initially this, this Texan woman, a very from, by all accounts, very dedicated and very competent Texan woman called Nancy Floyd. Uh, but when he started informing on the blind sheikh, she had to kind of hand him over to the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York. So he was then being handled by uh, an FBI guy called John Antichev and a cop called Lou Napoli, who worked for the NYPD, and they were working together for the Joint Terrorism Task Force. So they're handling Salem at that point. And he is saying he, he won't wear a wire. They don't have any bugs per se, but it does seem that they were tapping phones because some of the phone records and other stuff did come out in the trial. But the issue, I mean, there's three different trials. This is the other thing you have to remember for the World Trade Center bombing. You've got the first one, which is Mahmoud Salame, this idiot who goes back to the rental agency and the small number of people around him. Then you've got a separate trial of the blind sheikh and a number of his followers who were, to some extent, set up by Salem in a sting operation after the World Trade Center bombing. 
And then you've got the trial of Ramzi Youssef, who was the, the actual bomber, the guy who actually built this thing, who managed to escape detection or at least escape capture for like two years after the bombing and was running all over Asia, causing all sorts of havoc. So there are actually three different trials. Um, and trust me, the court records on that go way, way deep. And I have by no means read every last page of every last one of them. But no, no, they did not have actual bugs and wired informants going into that mosque at that time. No. Now, let me ask you this. Now, um, the blind sheik. Okay, now, mm -hmm. I, I think we can establish that there's something hinky going there, at least. We're getting into the states with the CIA. Okay, fine. But now his attorney, uh, this woman who's his attorney, you're familiar with that story, right? Yeah, yeah, Lynn Stewart, yeah. Right, okay, now, what is the deal with her now? Because she was, actually, she, did, she was arrested and charged with crimes uh, helping the blind sheik, right? Well, yeah, because when he was eventually, uh, the blind sheik was eventually arrested in, I think it was the summer of 93. And this is, after the bombing, the FBI rehired Salem for like one and a half million dollars, a lot more than they were originally paying him. So he re-infiltrates the blind sheik's circle and basically works as a sting operative on all the tapes and in all the transcripts of his conversations, because at that point they paid him a lot of money and he said, okay, I will wear a wire. So there are transcripts of this stuff. And it's always Imad Salem sat there saying, oh, we could, you know, we could blow up the Brooklyn Bridge. We could blow up the United Nations headquarters. We could do all this kind of stuff. Um, and so when it came to trial, there was actually a reasonable defense there of entrapment for that trial, for the second World Trade Center bombing trial. Um, and Lynn Stewart was the blind sheik's legal advisor, his defense counsel. And she did do some things that maybe weren't so wise. I mean, some of the money that was being moved around and was sort of exchanging hands at that point to pay for this defense trial was coming from some places that I think a lot of lawyers would have recognized was a bit dodgy. But there's n she didn't necessarily break the law. This is the thing. I don't really see. It's only post 9-11 when they kind of had this atmosphere of, oh, anyone who was ever associated with any of these people is some kind of terrorist facilitator or terrorist sympathizer. It's only then that they nailed Lynn Stewart and started, you know, harassing her and threw her in prison. But yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a great case to be made that she is in fact innocent here and that she's got caught up in some horrible deep state event and that she did actually nothing wrong or did so little that's wrong compared to what else is going on here that she certainly doesn't deserve to ever have been in prison. Yeah. But then, it's then, then what is the theory then? That uh, the CIA brought him in, but the CIA dropped him and stopped supporting him, and, and then he had to run out and get his own lawyer? Uh, and how does that work? Well, I guess the theory would be he served a certain function. Right. And his, his function was to get the whole world starting to focus on, you know, this is the post-Soviet world. We're no longer worried about the evil commies coming over to you know, do whatever it's supposed, we're going to supposedly do. You know, now we've got to worry about something else. And it's, you know, it's now the Islamic terrorists. And the blind sheikh's primary role was to help inspire these young people and help radicalize them and brainwash them, we could call it that, um, into doing these sorts of things. Because the mosque wasn't just about what was going on in New York. That's the other important thing to understand, is this Al-Kifa center in this mosque was also about recruiting young Muslim men, radicalizing them, and also training them up, getting them somewhat trained in intelligence and paramilitary uh, techniques and so on, and then sending them off to places like Bosnia. Because after the war in Afghanistan ended, 
and the Soviets were driven out, that whole thing just shifted focus to other parts of the world. And one of them was the former Yugoslavia, Bosnia, the Balkans, that whole region, which, again, is interesting because Frank Wisner, senior, the guy who was OSS, when he was in the OSS, was actually responsible. He was the head of the um, OSS's office for that part of the world, for the Balkans and Eastern Europe. And then his son helps this guy get into the country who 50 years later is helping cause this war in the Balkans by training up these and, and recruiting these young Muslims to go and fight over there. So I guess that was the blind sheikh's role. And once he'd fulfilled it, or possibly once things got a little bit too hot and every, you know, the authorities got a little bit too close to him and using him in that kind of function was no longer feasible, they just decided to drop him. They just, he was a disposable asset an asset that once he'd completed his task, they could just feed him through the court system and let them have at him. And so, yeah, he had to get a defense lawyer and had to get Lynn Stewart to try and help him against these charges that some of which were probably true, but a lot of which were a result of this Imad Salam sting operation. So exactly how guilty the blind shake is, is another question, but... The truth is he's going to languish in prison until he dies, and there's not an awful lot that can be done about that. Um, yeah. So that would be my take on him, is that he was a disposable asset, or that once he'd served his function and things got a little bit too close to him, they just dumped him because they'd found other assets who could do the same thing. A couple of questions. Now, uh, in, in these <laughs> trials, <laughs> this investigation... Just, just a couple, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know how it is, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, wasn't there something that came out during all this, especially that, that plot, the so-called plot to bomb all the, uh, what do you call it? The, um, uh, the bridges and tunnels, right. all of that. That yeah. there was a plan also to, uh, to hijack planes and crash them into buildings. That is, uh, no, no, that's part of a different plot. That is what Ramzi Youssef was up to after he fled to the United States after the bombing. Ramzi Youssef was, like I say, trailing around Asia for a couple of years, getting involved with all kinds of CD types and trying to do all kinds of different bombings. And he came up with this idea for blowing up 11 or 12 different uh, Trans-Pacific airliners to try and blow them all up simultaneously while they were in the air, this very, very ambitious bombing plot. And while he was developing that, he also came up with this idea for suicide hijackings. Not an original idea, necessarily, but he did, uh, he and his roommate, there are interrogations of both of them where they talked about this idea where they were going to hijack a plane and crash it into CIA headquarters, which, as horrible as that might have been, there's a little part of me that thinks, you know, there's a little bit that thinks that might not have been so bad. But... In all seriousness, yeah, Ramzi Youssef certainly was developing ideas for that kind of attack and that kind of hijacking and that kind of plot back in late 94, early 95. Now, now what about that, that shooting that took place right in front of Langley, the exit to CIA headquarters right there on the highway? And, uh, was that involved with this group as well? Not as far as I know, but it has been, it has been hypothesized that it's got to somehow be connected and that guy did, I mean, he did sort of get away with it, at least for a few years, didn't he? As I remember, he just sort of drove up to the, the driveway up to, up to go into Langley, got out his car, started firing a bunch of, of these vehicles, and then just jumped in his car and took off. And because the authorities didn't kind of catch up with him that afternoon, he, he jumped on a plane and got out the country. And it was several years later 
wasn't it? Before they actually eventually caught up with him. In fact, was that guy ever ever brought to ground and arrested? I'm not so sure. I don't know, but you know what? Just recently, there was a similar thing that went on in front of uh, NSA headquarters uh, in, sure. in Maryland. You, you're from, and you're nothing. We don't know anything about what happened there. Just that there's a car full of dead people. Uh, as far, yeah. You know, as far as we can tell, you know? Um. Yeah, I've, I mean, I don't know what's what's really going on with these events, whether there's more to them or not. I guess it's always possible that some nutter might get hold of a machine gun and go and decide to shoot up the entranceway to a, <laughs> a government building. Um, on the other the hand, never make the you news do... Because they don't have a, a story ready to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that maybe that's one of the signs is that they didn't actually have a prepackaged story ready to sell people in the aftermath of this event. So maybe it actually wasn't them behind it, or I don't know. Um, yeah. It's certainly odd, though. You're right that you have this this event at NSA, and no one seems to really know what what's going on and where the investigation is going and who did this. Yeah, nothing to see here. Caitlyn Jenner is getting arrested on PCH <laughs> you know, for, yeah. for a car accident. Um, but you know, but back to Bosnia for a second too, because a lot of people don't realize that you're right. We we fighting on our side in Bosnia were these same Al Qaeda guys that later on uh, supposedly were our enemies uh, in uh, Afghanistan. Yeah, it's a it's a relatively seamless thing. I mean, just to, to take one simple example, one of the main figures in the Bosnian Mujahideen, which then became the Bosnian Muslim Army, the official army of the new country of Bosnia when that was created. Um, one of the senior guys in the Bosnian Mujahideen was the brother of Ayman al Zawahiri, oh, and really? so there you have a. a you know, as direct a connection as you want. And there is a very, very interesting report and a very interesting book that came out of this, written by a Dutch history professor, a guy called Cees Wiebes, Wiebes um, called Intelligence and the War in Bosnia, where he makes it perfectly clear that CIA, MI6, NATO, the Pentagon, were helping to get these guys into the Balkans to cause chaos and to cause the breakup of the former Yugoslavia and to break this off into, you know, I mean, what is it now, like 12 different countries? Um, and that they were flying in arms and, you know, organizing training camps. Basically, the same things that were going on in the 80s in Afghanistan were just transplanted onto Eastern Europe and into the Balkans in the early, mid-1990s. In fact, throughout the whole of the 1990s. Yeah. It, it, it always struck me. And I'll tell you why, because um, I remember when the Clintons, you know, they retired from the White House and they went to move to Connecticut. Or it was Westchester. I think it was Westchester. And it was a big local news stories about, okay, this is their new house and this is their new neighbors and this is their new neighborhood. And just down the street from the Clintons is a halfway house for Bosnian uh, freedom fighters. And they, <laughs> went, <laughs> yeah. and they went to the house and knocked on the door. Hey, Bos are you happy to have mm. Bill Clinton in your neighborhood? And you'll open up the doors. This was a house full of killers. <laughs> you looked at these guys. <laughs> <laughs> These guys, man, had the look of death in their eyes, man, because like, they had just come off the battlefield. And just a house full of these guys right down the block from, from Clinton. I guess if he needed some guys in a hurry. <laughs> <you know? laughs> well, no, you, you're probably right, though. They probably spent the previous two years running around the mountains of Kosovo shooting at people. I mean, right. yeah, some of these are very, you know, battle-hardened people. They're, they're no joke. No joke at all. I know we're laughing about it, but at the same time. Right, so yeah. Clinton had some guys in the pocket there if he needed them. Quite possibly, yeah. Because <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> what always struck me, too, another one, too, you never hear too much about this, is Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan had a best friend who traveled with him all the time, 
uh, and he was described as a uh, a Cambodian freedom fighter. <laughs> a, a former, really? Yes. He, he had with him all the time, a former Cambodian freedom fighter, and you hardly ever see this guy. Um, I, I try and search for him now and then on the web to find some information hmm. about it. But I remember watching this as a kid. You know, I was like 18 years old. And watching this on the news, and they showed him. And one day, it was Air Force One, and he just kind of stuck his head out of Air Force One and looked around. <laughs> and <then> he, had, <laughs> he had the look of death, man. You know, like a, a walking uh, hitman, you know? Mm, oh, mm. my God. So, anyway, these are the things that stick in my head. I see him, I can't forget him. Uh, like I see Donald Trump right now uh, making a fool of himself. Really? Well, I mean, g- give it another couple of years and maybe you'll see Donald Trump <laughs> hanging around with these sorts of guys as well. Donald Trump does have one of those guys, and I know his name. Oh. Okay. <laughs> In fact, I sold a condo to him one time. And if you're... <laughs> okay, I, I... Is, is, is there anyone you don't know? Actually? I know, I know. I, you know what? I, I, I try and live such a quiet life right now, you have no idea. <laughs> I don't answer the phone. I hardly talk to anybody except these radio interviews. I try and stay out of trouble. I really do. Uh, I'm working here locally. I'm trying to get press credentials, you know, to cover all the, cover all the uh, mm. campaign events, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm getting heckled by the local newscaster over here is heckling me on Facebook. <laughs> oh. you know, I'm just trying to quiet life, trying to get through life quietly. Um, but if you want to check out the Donald Trump's guys, okay, um, there's an interview with A.J. Benza where Donald Trump, A.J. Benza uh, were on the Howard Stern show. And A.J. Benza calls out all the guys that are around Donald Trump. Uh, and all those characters. He has some real, uh, you might call them like mafia type guys uh, who travel mm. with him and walk around with him uh, when he's in Manhattan all the time. We are here with Tom Secker. He's a British-based writer, researcher, author, podcaster, and filmmaker who specializes in the security services, terrorism, and declassified history. Uh, his book is Secret Spies and 7-7. His main website is spyculture.com, uh, but he's also on The Boiling Frog, which everybody uh, loves that uh, podcast. And what was the other one? So there was one more too. Clandestine is my other podcast. Clandestine, and I'll never, I'll never remember it because it's, it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> I can never absorb that in my head. We'll be right back after these messages with more of Tom's, uh, Tom Secker. And now a word from our sponsors, Pacific West Bamboo, your premier source for sustainable building material. They provide construction grade and craft grade bamboo material for all your indoor, outdoor, and gardening needs. Uh, Contact them for event planning and display building as well. 503-839-8126. Or you go to their new website, PacificWestBamboo.com. Or you can contact them on Facebook at Pacific West Bamboo. That's 503-839-8126. Amanda from Pacific West Bamboo was our first sponsor. Uh, She's been so good to us. uh, So please support her in return. I want to make everybody aware of our new member section at www.oppermanreport.com. You can go there and sign up for a monthly, quarterly, or yearly subscription. You can even purchase episodes one by one. Uh, You get full access to brand new original content, new guests, new uncensored interviews, my own investigations and reports, and we're going to be adding uh, sections with documents, images, police reports, uh, either provided by myself or by my guests or for my own investigations, my own reports. Uh, So you can go to oppermanreport.com and you can sign up there tonight. You can start listening tonight. Strawman. I want to mention Strawman. Strawman is a band uh, out of Toronto, Canada. Uh, They're good friends at the Opperman Report. 
Uh, they're a trio of guys who share the same mindset uh, most of us here do, and they put that energy into their words and music. Uh, so check them out at uh, strawmanmusic.com and drop them a line uh, to let them know that you heard them here on the Arpman Report. Uh, we'll be doing a, an interview with Sean Duffy soon. You can get an autographed copy of my book, How to Succeed as a Private Investigator, by visiting my PI website, emailrevealer.com. We also offer a computer and cell phone forensics. We can recover deleted text messages to uncover infidelity. Uh, we, can, uh, we offer asset searches, locates, email tracing, background reports, and we can even trace your spouse's email address back to internet dating websites to catch them cheating online. You can reach us at 800-572-9762, or you can email me at emailrevealer at AOL.com. New World Mexican Women. Everyone loves the New World Mexican Women, and their, their line of fine, handcrafted, authentic Mexican jewelry of stone mosaic and abalene stone inlay. In their first book, titled New World Mexican Women, available on lulu.com, uh, they teach you how to make this jewelry, and they have a collection of love letters to their men from their hometown that have immigrated to the United States to find work. Uh, they have also published a new book entitled Azucina to the Rodeo. It's about a young girl that falls in love with a rodeo bull rider, and she runs away with him uh, without telling her family. You can find the New World Mexican Women by Googling New World Mexican Women. And you can ask them about the, their deals on wholesaling, their fine jewelry, and all of the other projects that they have going on. Uh, if you'd like to have your business or website advertised here and promoted all over the world on dozens of stations every day, give us a call at 800-572-9762 or email oppermanreport at gmail.com. And now back to our show. Okay, welcome back to the Opperman Report. I'm um, your host, Private Investigator Ed Opperman. Show is brought to you by Audible.com. Go to audibletrial.com front slash Opperman Report. Uh, tomorrow, uh, tonight we have Tom Secker. Uh, we're going to be getting back to him in a second. But tomorrow I'm uh, recording a podcast with um, Pierce Redmond, uh, Porkins Policy, uh, PorkinsPolicyReview.com. And we're going to be talking about good old Jeffrey Epstein, and uh, by the way, I'm noticing some connections too to this uh, Jared uh, Fogel guy, the subway guy, and the Epstein case. Uh, so hopefully I'll be able to get into that tomorrow. And also too, we'll be talking about Epstein and Trump and all the usual stuff. Uh, and uh, Franklin scandal, all the wonderful things we talk about. Oh boy. But tonight we're here with Tom Secker, fascinating guy. Guys, uh, seems to have all this information at the tip of his tongue. Just like I used to have when I was young. Uh, <laughs> My memory's getting shot, my friend. His book is uh, Secret Spies and 7-7. And one of his websites is spyculture.com. He's also on The Boiling Frog. And the other one is called... Clandestine. Clandestine. Oh, man, I almost thought I had it. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I'll get it. I'll get it. And now, um, what else is there uh, that strikes you about the 93 uh World Transcendent Bombing that uh, we should know about that uh, throws up red flags and stuff like that? Well, okay. I mean, the timeline uh, that we'd sort of got up to is that 
Imad Salem has infiltrated this group the first time round, before the bombing. And going up to the summer of 1992, things are going relatively well. He has infiltrated this group. He's providing regular reports back to his handlers. But one of the problems is he doesn't really trust these two guys from the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Uh, he only really trusts Nancy Floyd, his original handler. So he's actually meeting her a lot of the time, and she's the one debriefing him and writing down the reports of what he's saying and, and taking them back. So then you get this new guy in the summer of 92. This new guy takes over at the JTTF, and he doesn't believe in Salem. He doesn't trust Salem. He wants Salem to wear a wire. He's, like, insistent on this. Salem explains, no, it's too risky. I'm not willing to do it, or certainly not for this piddling amount of money you're giving me. So he says, fire him. And exactly why Salem is then fired is something of a mystery, because he was a perfectly successful informant. And even if he wouldn't wear a wire, he was still providing them with useful information, and they weren't having to pay him a lot of money for it. But for some reason that's never been properly examined and explained, he gets pulled. And so you get into this whole question of, well, why was he pulled? And Nancy Floyd, this FBI agent who was at least running him in the original years, she starts poking around and she starts asking, asking questions and saying, well, what's happened here? And particularly after the bombing, she's like, well, really, what's happened here? Because something went desperately, desperately wrong in that decision to get rid of this guy. And so the FBI, uh, or at least the JTTF office in New York, they start leaking these rumors to the press that she was actually having an affair with Imad Salem. Yeah. And she, en she ends up being subject to this internal affairs investigation she basically has her career ruined because she started asking questions and trying to find out what was going on here and she ends up this otherwise by all accounts very dedicated very competent very capable agent gets dumped and gets her career smeared gets her public reputation smeared all because she was trying to find out what was happening here and that suggests to me there's some serious political pressure coming from somewhere this isn't just like you know, oh, she got pissed off at her boss one day and said some things that maybe she shouldn't have, and so she got a slap on the wrist. This is someone who was, you know, dumped from doing very serious work to doing utterly trivial things. And you have to wonder, what were they protecting? And I think what they're protecting there is ultimately this CIA relationship with what was going on, um, in that you have the blind shake, the guy who's providing the ideological motivation, if you like, for these attacks, and particular for the World Trade Center bombing. But you also have this other guy, Ali Mohammed, who, if people aren't familiar with, you have to find out about this guy, because he is... It's just an astonishing story, really. Do you want me to get into Ali Mohammed? Yeah, sure. Wait, wait, wait a couple oh. of questions first. Uh, the, the, woman, the woman FBI agent, where is she today? Is she talking? Uh, not really. I think, I think she's now left the Bureau. I think she gave up. Um, she <laughs> decided if you're going to ruin my career, I'm going to do other things. She was interviewed by Peter Lance, who wrote a couple of decent, but not amazing, I will say, books on this. And I think he interviewed her again for a Playboy article that he did uh, a couple of years back that he interviewed her and Imad Salem and found out a few more details about all of this. But no, no, um, you may be able to track her down, Ed. You may be able to get her on tape and maybe able to, to interview her. She might be willing to talk about it. I don't know. But on the whole, the media hasn't really tried to go and talk to her. So maybe it's actually that not very many people have even asked the question. So you might get lucky. You never know. Well, you know, I had the FBI uh, director that was in charge of the anthrax investigation. And the same thing sure. happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Richard Lampert. A nice guy, too. 
Uh, and <laughs> the sa- same thing happened to him. Uh, they, they smeared him. They tried to destroy him. Uh, they arrested him. Get this. He, he retires from the FBI. He goes to work for the Department of Energy and as security, you know. So part of his job is liaison with the FBI. So then they, they fire him from there and they charge him with uh, lobbying the FBI. You know, they use those lobbying laws that you're not allowed to contact the FBI after you leave the FBI because for lobbying mm-hmm. purposes. And they charge him with that. And they raid his offices and that embarrass him. But he has a big lawsuit right now, and I'm pretty confident he's going to win that. Now, Salam, where, where is Salam today? Uh, well, he's gone very, very quiet. Like I say, Peter Lance did manage to... I don't think he, he tracked him down. I think Salam contacted him. Um to be honest, uh, as, as I understood it from when I read that article, it's that Salem actually reached out to him and said, you know, you've been writing books on this and looking into this case. And so he kind of offered him an exclusive. But I think he's, he's still knocking around in New York somewhere. Again, it is possible potentially to track some of these people down and talk to them. I don't know how willing they would be, but it's, it's a possibility. Yeah, you can always try. It doesn't hurt. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I, oh, go ahead. Well, should I, I mean, should I get into this guy, Ali Mohammed? Because he really is also at the crux of all of this skulking in the shadows, yeah, sure. I feel. And if it's a funny story, sure, go ahead. <laughs> well, well okay. <laughs> this guy, I mean, this guy is just at the center of everything that's going on in, throughout this period. He, he was an uh, Egyptian army officer, like Salem was. And it was his army unit who assassinated Anwar Sadat, the Egyptian president. But at the time that that was going on, Ali Mohammed was actually in the United States on some kind of officer exchange program. And from several different sources, it was at that point that he was actually recruited by the CIA. And bear in mind, this is like back in 81, I think, that Sadat was assassinated. Right. So then he goes back to Egypt. And after Sadat is out of the way, uh, Hosni Mubarak, of course, comes to power, and he starts cracking down on the Islamists and cracking down on random Muslims as well. Um, and people like Ali Mohammed are thrown out of the Egyptian military and intelligence. So he's without a job. He then goes to the embassy in Cairo, the U.S. embassy in Cairo, and offers his jo- his his himself and says, "I, you know, I want to work for the CIA." So the CIA recruit him. This is maybe eighty-three by this point send him to a mosque in Hamburg, Frankfurt, somewhere in Germany in any case. He goes and infiltrates this mosque, but for some reason tells them that he's working for the CIA. This gets back to the agency, so they supposedly at that point fire him and want nothing more to do with him. But the problem is, a few months later, like the blind sheikh, he ends up getting into the US on a CIA-sponsored visa. And this is in the mid-80s, so this is right slap bang in the middle of Operation Cyclone and the war in Afghanistan, where the CIA are supporting people like Ali Mohammed to fight the Soviets. So obviously the reason why they're giving him a visa at that point is because they thought he was still useful to them. Okay. Should I, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, so he arrives, in, he arrives in the US, uh, sets up in California. He gets married within a matter of weeks to a woman, a woman that he met on the plane. Believe it, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, he then joins the US military and gets posted to Fort Bragg, where the Army's special forces train. Now, what are the chances of this guy who's supposed to be on a CIA terrorism watch list getting into the military and getting posted to Fort Bragg? Very, very strange. He's there for three years. During this time, he's doing all sorts of crazy stuff. He even ran like an in-house talk show 
on geopolitics and Islam and religion and all of these different things. And there are a few little clips that you can see from this. And it is hilarious that you've got this guy who's clearly some kind of, I don't know, on the one hand, a radical Islamist, but on the other hand, he's working for CIA, military intelligence, something. Um, and he's sat there in front of this, you know, terrible blue backdrop, ranting on about the Middle East and about how the US doesn't understand the Middle East and doesn't understand Islam and that this is, this is what they need to grasp in order to really get, you know, understand the world. Um, so that takes him through to about 89. He then leaves the military, um, but remains in the US military reserve for a further five years. And throughout this whole period, he is also training people at this mosque in Brooklyn, initially so they can go off and fight in Afghanistan. But then when the Afghan thing folds and sort of winds up, he then stays on at this mosque and he starts training the people who are being sent off to Bosnia and so on. And he's the one who's actually providing the intelligence training, the paramilitary training, the weapons training. He's the one who's taking these people who've been radicalized by the one CIA asset, the blind sheikh. He is potentially another CIA asset who's taking these wild-eyed, you know, guys who've been filled with this mumbo-jumbo about how they've got to go and do this stuff, and he's actually turning them into people who can actually be killers. You know, he's providing a very crucial role in all of this. And not only is he training all of these guys in Brooklyn, there is a distinct possibility he also trained Ramsey Youssef, who is the guy who gets called in at the end of 1992 to become the bomb maker. So... If that's true, he trained the entire World Trade Center bombing gang, every single one of them. And so if you've got, on the one hand, a CIA asset inspiring and ideologically brainwashing them, and on the other hand, you've got a guy who's training them and turning them into killers, then doesn't this start to look like some kind of deliberate CIA operation, rather than something that happens by accident? These aren't assets who went rogue and, you know, just decided one day to go off and do this. This is something planned by at least some people within the agency, would be my guess. And like so many times, like this happens so many times, uh, after the bombing, Ali Mohammed is never arrested. As far as we know, he's never even interrogated. However, he does subsequently become a part-time FBI informant on a relatively low level, but on top of having worked for the CIA and been in the special forces, it's like, oh, well, go for the trifecta, might as well work for the FBI as well. Um, he is never, they tried to actually to get him as the witness in the, uh, the Blind Shakes trial. The Blind Shakes, uh, not the Blind Shakes lawyer, Nozair's lawyer, tried to get Ali Mohammed as a defense witness to say, oh yeah, this was going on there and evidently this must have been part of some government operation. I've actually exchanged emails with that lawyer and he said, yeah, yeah, this was the defense we were trying to get, was that Ali Mohammed was on some kind of government operation. He was still working for the government in some, fact, fact, in some function, some way at that time. And so we were going to try and say that everything that was going on at that mosque was in some way the result of this and therefore that was going to constitute part of their defense. And they tried to find Ali Mohammed. This is in 94, 95. Couldn't find him anywhere. But the defense, uh, sorry, the prosecution at the trial, which was being run by this, this very, very unpleasant Department of Justice prosecutor named Patrick Fitzgerald, who I'm sure you're familiar with because he turns up everywhere. Um, he's, he admitted, we know where Ali Mohammed is, but we won't tell you. He actually admitted this at the trial. He was like almost mocking them, saying, oh, well, we, we can get hold of him, but we're not going to tell you where he is because we don't want him to come as a defense witness. 
Ali Mohammed actually receives a witness subpoena calling him to this trial. He asks Patrick Fitzgerald what to do about this, and it seems that Patrick Fitzgerald told him not to turn up because he never turned up. He never responded to the witness subpoena. So he's, you know, off in the wind somewhere at that time. He then puts together the cell or the two cells that carried out the African embassy bombings in 98 in um, Tanzania and in Kenya. Okay. Meanwhile, he's like training bin Laden's bodyguards. He's helping Zawahri travel around the world. He's deeply involved in the whole development of Al-Qaeda in the 1990s in every significant way. And like I say, at the same time, this is a guy who was at least recruited by the CIA in the 80s, was in the special forces, and then became an FBI informant. So he's a wonderful, mystical story that I have a feeling if we ever found out the truth about, we'd understand an awful lot more about what was really going on in all of these events. That, that's amazing. And, and he was also uh, kept you know, uh, in close comfort by the prosecutor. Uh, now, uh, no, but which trial was that, though, that you're telling me about, that you contacted the lawyer? That was the Blind Sheik's trial? Which one? That was the second trial, the Blind Sheik's trial, yeah. Really? Okay. So their, their defense was going to be, I was going to ask you about this, so their defense was going to be, hey, this whole thing was a CIA operation. Well, not necessarily a CIA thing, but they had a, I mean, the Blind Sheikh's defense was primarily focused on Salem and trying to say that Salem set this up and that this was an FBI sting operation. But the thing is, Nozair, who'd already been on trial for killing Kahana, but in that trial he'd actually been found innocent of murder somehow, uh, well, not guilty, of murder, but he'd been imprisoned on, on gun charges because he was running around firing this gun in New York. Um, so when they get around to finally busting up the blind shake and all of his, the gang around him and putting him on trial, they put Nozair on trial again for the Khan assassination, saying that this was part of some seditious conspiracy, that this was part of some larger conspiracy. So they're not charging him with murder as such. They're charging him with conspiracy to whatever. Um, so they try and put him on trial again. And it was his defense lawyer, a guy named uh, Roger Stavis, Stavis um, who was trying to get hold of Ali Muhammad in order to say, oh, well, yeah, but Nozair was trained by Ali Muhammad. So anything that he was doing was the result of this government operative running around causing havoc in New York. So therefore, at least to some extent, how can you argue this was a conspiracy? If he was doing all of this as the result of uh, some kind of government operation, then how can it be fair to call him the uh, you know partner in a criminal conspiracy so it was in that trial and it was particularly with Nozair's defense they were trying to argue this is the result of some higher government operation rather than just an fbi sting operation you know something now did you look up the newspapers in new york at the time to see if they were reporting on any of this because i don't remember any of that coming out uh, in the press oh there is a few bits and pieces yeah. um I'm trying to remember. Yeah, uh, the Village Voice. You know, Village Voice. I sure. mean, it's become yeah. become a bit of a joke these days, perhaps. But back in those days, it did actually do some very good reporting. And forgive me, I cannot remember the journalist's name. But if you if you look back, uh, I think he wrote, one of the articles he wrote was called "The CIA and the Blind Shake." And yeah, he was publishing some of these articles in Village Voice at the time, saying there is more to this. There is a, a you know a CIA-shaped shadow skulking in the background of all of these events that people aren't examining. Aside from that, no, there really isn't much. There's some on Salem and on the FBI, 
But the CIA angle has been almost entirely overlooked in the coverage of this. And that's all the more reason why I think it's it's really important and possibly the, you know, the much more important story than the FBI side of things. Yeah, the way you lay it out, it, it makes perfect sense. And also, too, it fits in. It fits into the second World Trade Center attack and, and also to the, the, the support of the Taliban, because, you know, the Taliban around that time, their, their lobbyist uh, in the United States was the daughter of the CIA director. Sure, sure. Well, this, I mean, this is a pattern that we see in a bunch of stuff. Like, you're right, it's, you could say much the same sort of thing about 9-11, is that the FBI are the ones, if, in as much as anyone gets blamed for 9-11 happening, it's the FBI. It's the, oh, why didn't you catch up with these guys? Why didn't you find out what they were doing? Why didn't you stop them? Same thing with 1993. Same thing with 7-7, but with MI5 in place of the FBI, maybe. But, yeah, you have the same issue in that, with 9-11, I, I did a show on this, I don't know, a couple of months back maybe now? Hard to remember. Um, talking about uh, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Madar, the two so-called muscle hijackers on the plane that was flown into the Pentagon. Um, and when they attended this al-Qaeda summit in January of 2000 in Kuala Lumpur, it was monitored by the CIA and by local intelligence, and they found out that these two guys were headed to the United States. They even got copies of their passports and found that they had visas for the United States. The CIA, for some reason, that again has never been fully explained, didn't tell the FBI about this. A cable was actually drawn up that was going to be sent to the FBI to say, these two guys are headed to the States, so you know you need to keep an eye on them and watch what they get up to. But it was never sent. Later, another cable was sent within the CIA itself, saying that this information had been passed to the FBI, and thus discouraging anyone else from telling them. And this information was not actually shared with the FBI until something like July 2001. It's like 18 months later, and only a couple of months before the 9-11 attacks happened. Now, one caveat. I am not saying Khalid al-Madar and Nawaf al-Hazmi actually carried out the 9-11 hijacking and flew that plane into the Pentagon. I'm not convinced of that. But it's a similar sort of story whereby the CIA are clearly up to things. The FBI is quite often kept in the dark and kept in the dark deliberately so. And if you read the 9-11 Commission's report about this whole fiasco over these two and why they, the FBI weren't informed about them, they say the CIA deliberately withheld this information. They're quite clear about that. I mean, they relegate the whole thing to a footnote. You have to really dig through to find out what they're saying about this. But when you find that, they are actually saying quite explicitly they deliberately didn't tell the FBI. And so what I'm wondering, looking back at WTC 93, is, well, if you have these two very important CIA assets in this mosque and you have this FBI informant who is mysteriously pulled out of the way six months before the bombing, well, is that because the CIA leaned on someone? Or if not leaned on someone, just, you know, made a phone call and said, back off, basically, I guess would be the message. And that's why Salem was pulled. And that's why Salem, if, or if you like, that's why the FBI couldn't stop the World Trade Center bombing is because they were never given a chance to. They were stopped from even having that opportunity. Very interesting. And uh, it was uh, in building number seven. That's where they had the Joint Terrorism Task Force uh, headquarters. Um, and, uh, you know, I was told, because I actually know uh, a lot of these guys. Um, <laughs> you were laughing before what I said it. But um, uh, my, my former business partner, the best man at my wedding, 
uh, was uh, NYPD Harbor Aviation, who actually rescued the people off the, the top of the building in 93. Uh, they, they went there with the helicopter. They lowered, they lowered themselves down. They, they attached themselves to the people, and they, they pulled them off one by one. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had described to me uh, around that time uh, about the, uh, the Building 7 uh, headquarters for counterterrorism. And he says, you know what? He says, you go there, Ed, and they got all these flat screen TVs and all these plasma TVs and all this stuff like that and all these computers. He goes, but, you know, it's all for show. It's all for press conferences because nothing really goes on there. (laughs) (laughs) You know? uh, Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. Because this was this is another question I have is that. I mean, this Joint Terrorism Task Force that we're talking about back with the 93 bombing, that was, I think, the prototype. That was the first one of its type in the U.S. And they set it up in New York because, I guess, New York was the obvious place. Um, I mean, now you have them everywhere. You have, you know, even in tiny little relatively irrelevant cities, we'll have some kind of interagency task force on terrorism. Um, But back then, you've got to wonder, why did they even set it up? Why did they even have this thing? It's not like terrorism was that important in the United States in 1992. It wasn't really until 9-11 that it became such a big political thing. Um, but even, you, know, you see what I'm driving at here, that they have this institution that, yeah. like you say, has all of these flashy gizmos and all of this you know, great-looking stuff. But they, they didn't stop 93. Uh, it seems that they <laughs> didn't do an awful lot in terms of stopping 9-11. So, well, what are they really there for? Like you say, is this all just PR and for show and to say, but also to try and sell that narrative to people, you know, to try and sell that idea of terrorism is this big threat that's out there and that could strike at it, you know, any moment in any place. And that whole thing really isn't true. But if you have all these institutions and all these guys stood around saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we process all this information and we, you know, we get it all up on the big screens and have a good look at it. Then it sounds like, oh, this has got to be serious. This look at what the government's doing to respond to all of this. Look at all their big television screens. Right. They must it must be real, right? Because back in those days, it cost five thousand dollars a piece. This is you know flat screen TVs back in you know <laughs> yeah it was big. The only people that had them was P Diddy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, sure, sure. It's not like these days where you can get them for a hundred dollars from China. Yeah, right, right, right. Hey, have you ever looked into the work of uh, Daniel Hopsicker? Somewhat, yes, yes. Um, I think he's. He's certainly onto some very, very interesting areas. I thought, I mean, he broke that whole story about the Boston bombers um, and their connection to Graham Fuller and therefore the CIA. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's into some very, very important areas. I'm certainly not going to dispute Daniel Hopsicker's work. He's a very good investigative journalist, I think. Yeah, me too. And before that, he was, you know, in, in 9-11, you know, he did all that work on the, the, the flight schools, uh, so much uh, he's revealed, and, and he even found the the stripper girlfriend, Mahama Ata's stripper girlfriend. He interviewed her for uh, a good half hour, an hour like that. Has like a video of her. Um, mm. Yeah, and it's the same kind of thing. These these cast of characters just kind of wandering around. They got money. Who are they? Sometimes they're at bars and they're, they're with strippers. The next time they're they're Muslim uh, fanatics. Mm. Well, you got to wonder about that, haven't you? When you think. Okay, so these guys were involved with Huffman Aviation, who by all means are all accounts are some kind of CIA front company. People with either those people or people using those identities are staying on military bases, but they're also hanging around with strippers and taking cocaine. 
these people sound a lot more like James Bond than they sound like, you know, Islamic terrorists, don't they? They sound a lot more like government agents of some description. Yeah, and bizarre stories. They're carrying a big trunk full of gold up a stairs and, and, and some apartment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like... like <laughs> Kruger hands and a pistol, yeah. Yeah, like they can't get this stuff more organized than they have it. Anyway, we better take a commercial break now. We're with Tom Secker, great guest, man. I, I love this kind of information, and, and I love how you're so thorough and, and you know all the details. And you, and you go back and you look up the court documents. I really appreciate that kind of work. Uh, Tom Secker, uh, clandestine is one of his websites. <laughs> Another one is spyculture.com. His book is uh, Secret Spies and 7 7. Uh, uh, that's on my uh, Opperman Report blogspot.com. You can find it there. Uh, and uh, we'll be, he has also a couple of podcasts. He has one on uh, Boiling Frog uh, and uh, one on Clandestine. And I think there's even some podcasts on spy culture as well. Uh, so we'll be right back after these messages uh, with more with our guest. And now a word from our sponsors. Pacific West Bamboo, your premier source for sustainable building material. They provide construction grade and craft grade bamboo material for all your indoor, outdoor, and gardening needs. Uh, contact them for event planning and display building as well. 503-839-8126. Or you go to their new website, pacificwestbamboo.com. Or you can contact them on Facebook at Pacific West Bamboo. That's 503-839-8126. Amanda from Pacific West Bamboo was our first sponsor. Uh, she's been so good to us, uh, so please support her in return. I want to make everybody aware of our new member section at www.oppermanreport.com. Uh, you can go there and sign up for a monthly, quarterly, or yearly subscription. You can even purchase episodes one by one. Uh, you get full access to brand new original content, new guests, new uncensored interviews, my own investigations and reports, and we're going to be adding uh, sections with documents, images, police reports, uh, either provided by myself or by my guests or for my own investigations, my own reports. Uh, so you can go to oppermanreport.com and you can sign up there tonight. You can start listening tonight. Strawman. I want to mention Strawman. Strawman is a band uh, out of Toronto, Canada. Uh, they're good friends at the Opperman Report. Uh, they're a trio of guys who share the same mindset uh, most of us here do, and they put that energy into their words and music. Uh, so check them out at uh, strawmanmusic.com and drop them a line uh, to let them know that you heard them here on the Opperman Report. Uh, we'll be doing a, an interview with Sean Duffy soon. You can get an autographed copy of my book, how to succeed as a private investigator by visiting my PI website, emailrevealer.com. We also offer a computer and cell phone forensics. We can recover deleted text messages to uncover infidelity. Uh, we, can, uh, we offer asset searches, locates, email tracing, background reports, and we can even trace your spouse's email address back to internet dating websites to catch them cheating online. You can reach us at 800-572 9762 or you can email me at emailrevealer at aol.com new world mexican women everyone loves the new world mexican women and their their line of fine handcrafted authentic ju mexican jewelry of stone mosaic and abilene stone inlay in their first book titled new world mexican women 
available on lulu.com. Uh, they teach you how to make this jewelry, and they have a collection of love letters to their men from their hometown that have immigrated to the United States to find work. Uh, they have also published a new book entitled Azukina to the Rodeo. It's about a young girl that falls in love with a rodeo bull rider, and she runs away with him uh, without telling her family. You can find the New World Mexican Women by Googling New World Mexican Women. And you can ask them about uh, their deals on wholesaling, their fine jewelry, and all of the other projects that they have going on. Uh, if you'd like to have your business or website advertised here and promoted all over the world on dozens of stations every day, give us a call at 800-572-9762 or email oppermanreport at gmail.com. And now back to our show. Okay, welcome back to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator at Opperman. The uh, show's brought to you by audible.com. Go to audible trial, uh, front slash, audibletrial.com front slash Opperman Report. Uh, sign up for free, get yourself a free audio book. Uh, also, too, guys, uh, got a big opportunity uh, to get the, station, uh, the show carried on a top 10 AM FM station in the state of uh, Arizona. Uh, it'll cover like the it, five million people alone. Uh, it, it reaches the, the potential audience uh, we can be covering there. It's one of the top ten stations over there. I just got to bring with me some sponsors. So if you've ever wanted to uh, uh, advertise, uh, this is the absolute time to get in now on the ground floor and uh, take us to this next level. I'm going to be uh, getting these press credentials here to uh, heckle these. Uh, oh, not to ask questions at these press conferences. <laughs> Oh, man. Maybe I'll bring Tom with me. You know? <laughs> we'll, go there. we'll go down to the Trump convention. We got Tom Secker. Uh, we're talking about the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Uh, he's the author of these books here. Uh, this book, um, uh, Secret Spies and 7-7. His main website is spyculture.com. Uh, but he's also on the Boiling Frog and another website called Clandestine. Uh, before we get, uh, I'd like to talk about your book a little bit, but before we get to, uh, to that, is, is there anything left over we need to know about 93? Well, I suppose, I mean, uh, part of the aftermath of this is that there were, aside from Nancy Floyd getting her career ruined, there were a bunch of Office of Inspector General investigations into all of this because you had one from the State Department on why the blind shake was given these visas in the first place. You have one from the CIA, which hasn't in any way been made publicly available. And you have one from the Department of Justice who were looking into the forensic side of this investigation, which they screwed up completely. Um, just briefly, uh, the CIA one was kind of a little bit of it was leaked, to, I think, to the Boston Globe. And it's kind of, it sort of fudged the whole thing. It turned it into this whole, oh, this was accidental. This was blowback. Oh, because we'd given these people some support back in the 80s. This came back on us. And oh, whoops, Daisy, and maybe we won't do that again. And that's essentially the narrative that the CIA kind of leaked to the Boston Globe as a, I would guess, to throw them off the scent. You have the one in the State Department where they were looking into these visas being, uh, that were given to the blind shake. And basically what that concluded was we can't decide whether or not it was right to give these visas to the blind shake because we never got to look at the files from Cairo from when they were making the decision. 
So clearly the State Department went to their own embassy in Cairo, asked them for these files and these discussions, and, you know, why were these visas given? And they said, oh, no, you can't see them. Once again, that sounds like the CIA have nixed that investigation. You also have the one from the Department of Justice, because the guy who testified in all of these World Trade Center bombing trials, no, sorry, just the first two, um, the, the guy, the explosives, forensics guy, made a complete pig's ear of this. And from his own account, he basically wandered around the bomb site and thought up what he thought might have been used to do this bombing. He didn't actually rely on, you know, chemical samples. He didn't actually rely on proper forensic methods for determining, you know, the residues and what have you. And also the the blast force and things like that. You can measure all of this stuff and say, oh, it was probably this explosive and approximately this much was used. He didn't do that. He just sort of wandered around and made up his own mind. Um, and obviously this didn't go down too well when it came out that actually this is the so-called expertise that this guy was basing his judgment on. Um, and I'm sure you're familiar with Fred Whitehurst, who blew the whistle on all of this and said, and he actually testified in the uh, Blind Shakes trial as a defense witness, saying that, no, the process that they went through in order to make this determination that this is what was used in the bombing was completely fallacious. It was, you know, it's nonsense. It's non-science. It's not forensic investigation at all. So, yeah, you've got the Department of Justice Inspector General report into all of that, which that is now fully available. You can actually find that online, and it's a long technical, but in places, absolutely fascinating read. And to their credit, they do lay into their own man quite a lot and say, you know, this guy just tailored his testimony to try and gain a conviction, and that, in fact, it wasn't based on proper, what we would call proper standards and proper forensic investigation whatsoever. Fred Whitehurst is actually supposed to come on the show. Um, we've been playing uh, phone tag, uh, but and I, I kind of gave up. I, I should revisit that and, and go back and see him again because he also testified at the uh, Oklahoma City bombing, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when he blew the whistle on all of this, yeah. it was with regard to several different cases that had been investigated by that crime lab. And it does seem certainly in the mid-90s, and we can only guess how bad it is now, but certainly at that period of time, that FBI crime lab was a joke from everything that I've read in that report and everything that Fred Whitehurst has said, I can, yeah, it was, it was pretty bad what was yeah. going on in those investigations. Yeah, we got to revisit that and get him on here as well. Oh, boy. So, so what, what do you think? Uh, is there anything else we need to know about 93? <sighs> there probably are some other things, but it's pretty late. And to be honest, I can't remember anything <laughs> else that's all that pertinent right now. So, um yeah, yeah, if you want to move on to something else, just uh, with the time we've got left. Well, yeah, about the book. Tell us about your book, because it seems to cover a lot of topics. Uh... Well, I mean, that, that, that was the culmination of my uh, investigation, and with help from some other people, my investigation into the 7-7 bombings, the London bombings of 2005. And it's a similar sort of story in that this whole thing is pinned on a bunch of Islamist fanatics. But in that case, I really, really don't think... They were even there. I don't think they were even on those trains and that bus setting off bombs. So the question of whether someone tricked them or provoked them or manipulated them into doing it is kind of a, a non-starter, a non-sector. It doesn't really go anywhere because basically, I mean, I got involved with the 7-7 thing shortly after it happened. Um, I remember when it when these these bombings were going off i was sat there listening to all of this kind of unfold on the radio 
And I wondered even then, is this going to be like another 9-11 situation or a similar sort of event that, you know, they're, they're, they're just feeding us a line on this and that the reality is there's not going to be a proper investigation and there's not going to be a sincere looking at what really happened here. And as time went on, that kind of became obvious that that was happening with 7-7. And so I got started getting in touch with people who were investigating it, the July 7th Truth Campaign and others. And in this led to me making my first film in 2010 and then another film in 2011 because they had a, in the, what was it, winter of 2010, start of 2011, they had, they finally, five, six years after the bombings, held inquests to determine the deaths, how the people died, how these victims actually died. Um, you know, British government moves quickly, as always. Um, so a lot of more information came out at those inquests. So I made a second film in 2011. But even after I'd made that film, I felt there's more to this here that I didn't manage to cover in these films and that I kind of just started all over again. I just started from the beginning of the, the case, the investigation again, and kind of ran through it all for another year and felt there's enough here certainly for a book and frankly there isn't any book out there covering this stuff and there kind of needs to be so i sat down and, and wrote it and published it myself and it is it is an examination of the seven seven bombings from a lot of different angles but it also does tie in some of the other stuff we've talked about gladio and so on and even traces it going back all the way to the late 19th century with the anarchists where you see a very similar sort of model of infiltration and provocation and manipulation being used to disrupt this this movement that might otherwise have become a threat and in doing so uh, help create the kind of circumstances that led to the creation of MI5 and the development of these secret police organisations in this country and so this is a dynamic that it's been going on for centuries probably but certainly decades and over a century as I trace it back in the book and I kind of used that as my model if you like for approaching 7-7 and I looked for similar sorts of characters in the background of, of that story and you find them same thing again there is going back even before 9-11 the security services had their eyes on this guy called Martin McDade who was running a Islamic bookshop up in Leeds, where three of these so-called suicide bombers were from. Um, and he is a former British Special Forces soldier who worked in counter-terrorism in Northern Ireland when all of that was going on. In the late 1990s, he mysteriously converts to Islam and starts insisting everyone calls him Abdullah. And he sets up this bookshop and he starts running these, like... Uh, camping trips out to the Lake District and what have you, where he's running these sort of um, military exercises, not with weapons or anything like that, but just getting people to run up and down with backpacks and do lots of press-ups and, you know, trying to push people. And one of the guys who was on these, these trips said, you know, that was the idea. It was, you know, he wanted to push people. He wanted to see how far he could push them. Mm. He wanted to see what they were willing to do and what they could be made to do. And you start to get the impression this guy's working for MI5 or something. He's there. He's not there recruiting as a radical Islamist. He's there trying to find some people to be set up. And as the story progresses, you also tie in, there's another guy in Britain, but there's also an American guy called Mohammed Janaid Babar, who I did a very lengthy investigation and, and published a whole load of documents that I'd compiled from different places on, on him. And he's 
another one of these very, very strange characters who, uh, well, just briefly, Junaid Babar's mother was in the World Trade Center on 9-11. He, oh, he was yeah. Pakistani, but he grew up in New York. And his mother was in the World Trade Center. She narrowly escapes being killed. For some reason, this young, this makes young Mohammed Junaid decide to join Al-Qaeda. Despite being told, you know, Al-Qaeda's just nearly killed your mother, he goes, oh, well, this seems like something I want to be part of. So in late 2001, he flies off to Pakistan. He gets a job with the Pakistani government, at least for a year or so, and gets involved with Islamist gangs in Pakistan. For a couple of years, 2003, 2004, he's running a training camp there that involves explosives and weapons training and really, you know, serious stuff. Virtually everyone who passed through those, that camp in those two years later ends up in a trial facing terrorism charges. The only people who didn't, pretty much, ended up being blamed for 7-7. So I think Junaid Babar was some sort of entrapment operative. Because he himself, in early 2004, flies back to the United States. He isn't arrested when he lands even though they must have known about this guy. I mean, this is a guy who'd been on TV ranting and raving and saying he was going to kill Americans if they entered into Pakistan and things like this. So they knew who he was. There is no reason for them to have not known who he was. But he isn't arrested when he returns to the United States. About a month later, the FBI approach him outside his house. They just walk up to him on the street. And he instantly flips he instantly becomes a cooperator and starts telling them everything he knows and telling them about every single person who passed through this, this, this training camp he was running. And he ends up like serving maybe four years in prison and then gets, it all gets commuted to time served and he's now a free man. He's now, I assume, wandering around somewhere in New York, completely free. Meanwhile, virtually everyone that he trained and virtually everyone that he you know, put through his training camp is still in prison. 10, 20, 30 year sentences. So you've got to wonder again with this guy, is he some kind of secret agent? Is he some kind of entrapment operative? And that was the whole point of everything he was doing in Pakistan for those three, four years. Amazing. <laughs> I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you, Ed. No. But, I mean, seriously, th these people are everywhere. In the background of virtually every major terrorist plot you can think of, there is one or two or three people like this. And that can't be a coincidence. This isn't just some, oh, whoops-a-daisy, our agents sometimes, you know, go off the, off the reservation and start doing things they shouldn't. This has got to be some kind of long-term strategy, or, or at least a strategy that has survived for a long time and that keeps being used by new generations of spooks, new generations of CIA, MI5, whoever. Because it it's not going to stop, I don't think, unless we find some way to confront it. And so I guess that was part of the point in writing the book, was to confront it in the only way that I knew how, was to try and intellectually confront this. Because I'm not one of these people who's going to get angry and go, you know, shoot up the MI5 building. Right. I don't think that would accomplish anything. I don't really think it'd be a good idea at all. Um, aside from the moral question, um, I just, you know, strategically, it's idiotic do things like that really um so how could i what could i do about this well i could yeah try and confront them intellectually by doing the best investigation i could and publishing it as as freely and widely available as i as i as is available to me as is possible to me
so that's kind of what the book was. And the videos are, are free, though. <clears throat> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you can download the book for free. Um, you have to pay for the paperback, obviously, because I'm, right. I'm not rich. <laughs> I can't afford to just give away paperbacks much as I'd love to be able to. Well, but, you, um, you, you yeah, yeah, the, the films in the book, you can, you can download for free if you want. You should consider putting the, the videos up on Amazon. Self-publish them on Amazon, just like you do with the book. And because when people are searching on Amazon for your book, you know, then they see these videos as well. It reaches more people. You, you know, you don't have to you just sell it for a buck or two, you know, and even let Amazon get most of the money because um, they take a huge chunk. Uh, yes, they do that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, um, certainly not a bad idea. I'll consider it. Sure. Because I'm always looking for guests on there. And, and, and a lot of these free videos, they're not on there. You know, now, um, uh, what do you make? Because now it seems to be almost like a virus. That every single thing that happens is a false flag, and everything, every everything. Now people think everything's fake. Uh, you know, what do you, what do you, what, what's your instinct on that? Um, well, I, I have pretty strong opinions and pretty strong feelings about that one. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't buy it. I'm certainly, I'm not by any means saying that false flag terrorism doesn't happen. It absolutely does, and these cases we've been talking about tonight are prime candidates for it. Yeah. But this notion that. You know, even one person, one kind of mass shooter event. And you have to wonder, I mean, I'm not trying to be disrespectful here, but America is a relatively violent country where you have a relatively large amount of gun crime. And the particular ones that get on the news and don't get on the news, there seems to be some kind of strange dynamic at play with that as to what gets focused on and what doesn't. And I think partly because people have this sense of that media manipulation, they start to think, oh, well, are all of these events orchestrated? And I don't think they're all orchestrated. I think the thing that's orchestrated is the media coverage. It's not the events necessarily themselves. Some of them may be, or even I would say quite probably, but a lot of the time this is actually something that really happened. It's just that the media is either covering it or not covering it or putting this spin or that spin on it for other reasons. The notion of you know, just that it's all fake and that none of these people died. I find I find it repugnant, to be honest. I have a lot of trouble with that idea because I just feel that on the outside chance that that's true, what's the point in even saying it? What, what does it accomplish? Whereas the vast majority of the probability says to me, that's not true, those people did actually die. In which case, you're sat there denying that some people were killed? What kind of person does, does that make you? What kind, of, what kind of response is that to a tragic event? Is to say, oh, well, I don't think those kids ever even existed. Can you prove to me that they did? And I'm thinking, well, you know what? If that's your initial reaction, no, I'll probably never be able to prove to your satisfaction that those people really existed and that those people were really killed. Because if that's your response to things, then what kind of evidence would persuade you otherwise? I think it's a really, it's a worrying point for us to have got to with this, where people are, they're not just going to disbelieve the spin, they're not just going to disbelieve hype, they're not just going to disbelieve obvious deceptions, they're actually just going to disbelieve the whole thing. They're just going to think, oh, well, if it's on the news, it's all untrue. Every last element of what they're saying is untrue. And therefore, like I say, that these, you know, none of these people ever existed. And particularly with Sandy Hook, you know, that's where it really bothers me, because <laughs> you're talking about kids. You're talking about 
kids being brutally slaughtered. And maybe they weren't killed by Adam Lanza. I don't know. It's not one I have a firm opinion on on that score. But if they weren't, then there's nothing to be accomplished by saying, oh, they never existed. Whereas there is something to be accomplished by saying, maybe someone else killed them and shouldn't we be trying to find them? That's a valuable thing to be doing. But just this, it's like wanting to escape. You know, I think there's an element of escapism there to just say, oh, well, it's, it's all fake, it just didn't happen. It means you don't have to worry about it. it. means you don't have to take any responsibility. It means you don't have to come up with a mature, intelligent response and say, well, if our government is actually doing these things, what are we going to do about it? It's much easier to just say, oh, well, it never actually happened, so therefore I don't have to do anything. There's no, no responsibility on me. I think that's, that's my take, anyway. I'm rambling now. No, no, you're, you're not rambling at all. And I, I appreciate every single word that's come out of your mouth. And it almost seems like, too, like that some of these uh, so-called investigators and researchers that are doing the work uh, to expose what's going on and to prove that everything's a false flag are almost fo- falling prey to the PSYOP. Uh, they're almost part of it. They're almost, almost the greatest victim of it. Uh, and their, their zeal uh, to, to expose things. And, and really, there has to be periphery people on these cases that have no idea whether it's fake or not. And they're, now they're getting phone calls and emails and they're, they're being chased around the country. Mm. <laughs> you mm. know? And people who did lose nieces and nephews at these events, you know, and now they're being contacted and told, oh, you, you know. Uh, well, and, and and that's the thing. It's like the we talked about this on 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 this info wars. It's the ethics of this thing. Right. It's like by all means investigate these things. By all means challenge the government. By all means disbelieve in what the authorities are trying to sell you. I have no problem with any of that at all. But when that crosses over into denying that people ever existed and phoning up their relatives and harassing them, that's a line that we should not cross. If we're doing that, then we really are no better than the tabloid media, and. What's the point in us doing this if we're not going to be better than the tabloid media? Really. So true. And some of these people are talented. They have talent in research. They have talent in investigating. Uh, but we have to have, like you said, a decency. And we have to be responsible in what we're, what we're uncovering and what we're reporting. Well, if we're going to take on that responsibility, then let's take on that responsibility and do it right. And if you're not, and if you don't want to have that responsibility and you don't you know, care about any of that, Okay, I'm not really going to say that you have to, but I'd rather you just kind of walked away from this area because, frankly, you're poisoning it for the rest of us. So true, and you're so true. The making the rest of us look crazy, you know. And, and now we got this whole other uh, element with the flat Earth and uh, the, the two suns and the moon is fake and all this just bizarre. Uh, uh, anyway. I- I kind of like the moon is fake idea. <laughs> really, it's like you know, someone's been reading too much sci-fi. Basically, wait, is what that comes down to. You have to admit, um, wait, the moon looks exactly like Jackie Gleason. Now, there's something up with that. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's one I'm willing to take a look at because that's way too much of a coincidence. My friend Tom, I'm glad you enjoyed the show, man. I, I really enjoyed this, uh, and I really respect your work. What, 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 toward the end of the show, though, what do you have coming up? That what are you working on? What can we expect from you? Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm still continuing with, with what I'm doing. There's, um, we're still doing work on these, these documents we got from the Pentagon's Entertainment Liaison Office. They're like Entertainment Propaganda Office because we got, you know, over 1,500 pages of reports from of what they've been doing in recent years. So there's still a lot of things that we're working on in terms of trying to figure out what we've even got there and, and 
you know, how we can get some of this information out into different forums. Uh, me and Pierce, Pierce, who you're going to be talking to uh, tomorrow, I think, we are planning, slowly but surely, planning the second season of our CIA and Hollywood series, which is shaping up very well. It's shaping up very interestingly. I think that's going to be... Uh, it's going to be probably better than the first season was, and we were both quite happy with the first season. So going to be looking at a whole bunch of films with that and a whole bunch of interesting CIA characters, again, lurking in the shadows of the Hollywood entertainment industry on that score. And just continuing with my podcasts. I mean, uh, yeah, I'll still be doing Disinfo Wars at Boiling Frogs Post. There is some other stuff perhaps in the works over there. And yeah, on spyculture.com and with Clandestine, my podcast for Spy Culture... That will be continuing. I am actually, um, <laughs> um, my next episode for that should be on the whole Marilyn Monroe thing, which you covered relatively recently with uh, Jay Margolis and oh, I can't remember the other guy's name, Rob Buskin, something like that. Um, excellent episode. And I've, yeah. I read Donald Wolf's book, which is broadly, in broad terms, is the same sort of thing that they were talking about. It's the same explanation of, of her murder. <clears throat> so, yeah, I'll be doing an episode on that soon where I'll offer a slightly different perspective to what uh, Jay offered on your show, but very, very along very similar lines. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's all continuing. It's all still coming. Very good. You know, uh, especially your, your Hollywood, what is it called, Hollywood and the CIA? Uh, uh, the, the CIA and Hollywood, yeah. CIA and Hollywood. Yeah, I, I'd love to have you back on uh, during the daytime. You know, we can record something so you don't have to stay up all night. Because uh, <laughs> I know it's like 3 o'clock in the morning over there now. It is now 3 a.m., yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, my friend. Thank you so much, man. I, I really enjoyed it. The chat room, everybody's loving this, man. Everybody really loves it. So thank you so much for coming on. Uh, really. Well, thank you, Ed. It's, it's yeah. been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It really has. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. No, me too, yeah. And it's, this is real investigation, real thorough work, man. Details. The guy has everything off the tip of his tongue. Uh, so I really appreciate that, my friend. Uh, Tom Secker, uh, the author of um, uh, uh, Secret Spies 7-7. Uh, spyculture.com is his website and clandestine is his other website my friend right <laughs> uh, uh, no 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 clandestine is the name of my podcast for spyculture.com gotcha and also on the bowling frog he's also uh, yeah yeah I'm also over there Tom thank you so much I'll say goodnight okay thanks Ed cheers thank you sir okay that was Tom Secker great guy um, what I'm going to do is now guys we restart Spreaker and also, too, um, we're already over time. Uh, we have to drop uh, 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 PSN. Say goodnight to PSN. Uh, we'll see you next week. Get over there. Good night, PSN. Okay, I'm going to restart Spreaker now. And uh, we're going to uh, let me make sure I got the right one here. And turn on PSN. I should have a producer does all this for me. Uh, to stop that stuff. Boop, 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 boop. Okay, we're still on Awake Radio. Uh, Wakeradio.us, uh, Wakeradio.us, uh, K, uh, Scottish Sovereigns on the Land, all those stations. I don't think we've been on Shazz's for a while. I think uh, I, I don't have the uh, encoders here set up correctly, so we're not on there. I'm going to be coming back uh, in a little while. Uh, we'll take some phone calls, but first, before we take calls, what I want to talk about is the, um, uh, what do you call it, the uh, Ashley Madison hack, that whole story there. Uh, so good night, guys. I'm going to restart speaker right now.